Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, I want to sort of take the pulse of the audience to begin, because we've had some good discussion already. But one of the things that I love about uh, speaking at Thomistic Institute events um, is the variety of backgrounds that bring people and draw them to Aquinas. Um, and it's not always the um, philosophy grad students and know-it-alls uh, who might have intimidated some others in the room. So I'm curious, how many people here have not read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics? Okay, this is good. All right. Um, so for those of you who have, like most of the audience has not, how many of you have uh, studied uh, any texts from St. Thomas on uh, the idea of natural law? Have studied only a very, very few. Okay. Um, how many have read uh, Pope John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor in the papal encyclical? One person has read very taught us. A couple more. Yeah, I, I, the guys in white don't have to raise their hands for these. Um, how many of you have you hadn't even heard of very taught us by Pope John Paul II? So, hey, you raise your hand for that. So, I assumed when I heard the topic for this uh, retreat, the splendor of truth, that it was an allusion to uh, an encyclical that John Paul II wrote in the 1990s about, um, well, this is what gets contentious about uh, you know, naming what it's about. But I would say it's about moral philosophy and the um, importance of getting moral philosophy right for the church. I'm probably going to talk more about Veritatis Splendor in my second talk this afternoon. But this is useful background for me to sort of be reassured that, that sort of having some, some basics out first could be useful. Um, one of the things that Father Connor talked about in his talk this morning is the different modes of engagement that Aquinas had with his students. And um, I hadn't thought of this until he was talking about it. But I wonder if we could start with a short uh, disputed question. But this is going to require you guys to be involved. Um, the disputed question is um, the question either uh, articulated by my title, right, who gets to judge? Um, or that title as interpreted by the subtitle, which I think is something like um, truth in moral. Answering objections to truth and morality. Answering objections to truth and morality. So it sounds like a disputation already. Answering objections to truth and morality. So we, I, I'll do my part to begin. I will formulate what the question is. And I will, in formulating the question, I will be inviting you to give. Um, uh, arguments in favor of answers to the negative. I want you to try to convince me, no, even if you don't personally believe that, right? You're, 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 you're able to formulate an argument for a conclusion if, even if you don't believe it, right? So I want, I want to formulate a question that you can then um, offer just a few, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll aim for three, like, like, like Aquinas and the Summa, but not 19, like it was a real live disputed question. Um, so the question is, uh, is there truth in morality? Uh, by formulating the question that way, right, I'm sort of setting the tone that for the rest of this session, I'm going to try to answer yes. 
there is, and give you good reasons for that. But um, does this sound like a fun exercise? Can, can someone come up with a reason why you might think the answer is no? There is no truth in morality. And if you go first, you're the hero. Like, there's no, I know it takes courage, but like, you can't go wrong if you go first. And, I'm, and, I'll, and I'll help you. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. You know too much philosophy. I want someone, you know too much philosophy. How much philosophy do you know? I want someone who just doesn't know any philosophy. You just, yes. What's your name? What, what's your name? Denise. Denise. All right. So you say there's no truth in morale. It might be not true in the sense that uh, morality depends on it's subjective. It's subjective. That's my argument. Okay. Can we go back and forth for just a minute? Do you have reasons for thinking why, why do you say it's subjective or what do you mean by saying it's subjective? Uh, because we, I mean, not, we do not talk about uh, natural law. Yes. Talk about like, moral in general. Uh, uh, now, give me just a stupid example. So, I would say, for example, that um, eating one teaspoon of sugar is fine, but then I would say 10, 10 teaspoons of sugar is okay as well. Right. And why is it threshold? Fair enough. So, it seems like different people in different positions have different perspectives on these things, and it would be hard to say there's one right answer. Uh, maybe the teaspoon of sugar uh, example. Uh, sounds almost too trivial because it doesn't even rise to the yeah. to the level of a moral choice. But maybe that's the point, right? Maybe the things that we think are really important, uh, like you know, is um, is euthanasia wrong, right? Well, maybe someone thinks it is. Maybe someone thinks it isn't, right? And then the question of my title: Who gets to judge? Right? So uh, here's here's objection one: uh, uh, Moral judgments are matters of subjective. Um, uh, perspective and matters of subjective perspective vary from one person to another, therefore there's no truth in uh, morality. Good? Denise did a good job, right? Who wants to go next? Yes, sir. What's your name? Thomas. Thomas. Uh, good name. Go ahead. The, the statement is irrelevant because it's impossible to identify certain truth in morality, even if it doesn't exist. Oh, I, I, I like where this is going. You want to say a little bit more? You're suggesting that um, even if there is truth in morality, it's not accessible to us, and so we might as well just sort of functionally behave. Yeah. Exactly. Why, why, why do you think that? Why do you think it's not available to us? That um, because. Well, because um, there's always always going to be a heaven's over what it is. Okay. Whether due to people's motivations or... And we have limited tools at our disposal to identify truth. Yeah. We have reason, but we don't have um, omniscience. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That's very subtle. That's, it's, it's even going beyond the, the strict question, but I think it's actually a reason why many people think well, we might as well just act as if there is no truth in morality. Because even if there is truth, uh, uh, and, and these, these can be related, right? Different objections don't have to be totally isolated from each other. Maybe there's something about the human condition that means that we are so limited in our ability to have access to this that even if there is truth, we won't have access to it. And so, at least from our perspective, right, um, 
there would be no truth in morality. And, and as a consequence, then presumably arguing about uh, moral matters would, would be, um, well, it wouldn't be, it might be interesting, you know, in the way that any kind of argument is, a kind of battle, but it wouldn't necessarily be aimed at wisdom. Right? It could be an exercise of power, right? I, I could argue with you about morality because I don't want to try to get you to do something. Um, and in that sense, my language would not be philosophical, like seeking wisdom with you as a friend, or with truth, would be manipulative. And, and um, in a sense, unfriendly, right? Because I'm just treating you as someone whose will I want to bend to, to my will. All right, so we have two, we have two objections. I, I, let's see if we can get one more, right? Morality is not, uh, there's no truth in morality because morality is, is itself a matter of subjectivity. Right? Uh, so there isn't actually truth there. Morality, there's no truth in morality uh, to us because even if there were truth in morality sort of in and of itself, we're so limited in our ability to reach it that we might as well not even try it. And, and, and it's, it's futile. You got, we got another one? I'm not sure if it's another repeat of the previous notes. Uh, as uh, different cultures vary in their view of what is moral, good. Uh, there's not a good, uh, there's not an authority able to establish what is moral, and moral questions aren't necessarily able to actually go one way or the other. Therefore, as truth has to be, uh, has to land on one side or the other, it cannot sit on the fence. Right. I think this is excellent. I think I think it could be related to the first one, but I think it's very much worth differentiating this. If the first one is, is focused on a kind of personal fact about human cognition, right? This is more uh, sociological, right? Recognizing that maybe maybe we often feel like we have access to truth within certain communities, and so you know we've learned to think this way because we are this this community. But then we notice uh, we could call this maybe the pluralism objection. There's different kinds of communities with different kinds of perspectives, and hey, we think this is true, but they think something else is true. Uh, who are this we to say? Say again. Who are we to say? Who are we to say? Right. So it's not just who am I to judge between individuals, but uh, who are we to say which culture has the right authorities on these matters? Uh, this was good. I, I'm assuming that on one level, none of these objections sound new to you, right? These are all things that you've heard. They're kind of out there in popular culture. Some of you yourself might might struggle with these and wonder, okay, um, uh, that, that's always how I've thought about it. How else is there to think about it? Uh, I, I often find that students that they're surprised to even hear that there might be an alternative to that view. They're surprised that it's even a question. They just sort of take it as a given that um, morality is this matter of like personal judgment and people's tastes vary and cultures, cultures differ and maybe they've heard of people who believe that there's uh, a truth but of course you don't have access to it so even those people are stuck in our world where it's subjective and pluralistic. Um, so before I, before I start defending uh, the alternative view, right, that there's truth in morality, I want to point out that there's actually different layers of philosophical question at stake in this. Right? Um, the, the main question that we've been, the main kind of question that we've been formulating, um, and which I'll mostly talk about today, is epistemological, by which I mean it has to do with uh, understanding how knowledge works. 
what, what, what is human knowledge? What kinds of things are available to human knowledge? What is it, what is it that we can do when, when we try to uh, discern truth about difficult questions where, where um, there might be contested claims to knowledge, right? So that's an epistemological question. Uh, epistemological questions, though, imply another layer of questions, and Father Connor talked about these a little bit in his talk yesterday. They imply questions about uh, what it is to be a human being. They, they imply questions about uh, what philosophers call philosophical psychology, right? What are the, what, what are the faculties of the soul? Uh, what, what powers do we have as human beings to grasp truth? How, how, is, how is grasping truth different, say, from um, smelling an odor or seeing a color? Uh, how, is, how does grasping truth differ from having a dream or having a memory or something like that? Are there different kinds of truth? Are there different modes of truth? Do we have to, are there methods of arriving at truth? All of those are what philosophers call epistemological questions from the Greek word for uh, knowledge, sometimes translated as scientific or certain knowledge, episteme. Um, so epistemological questions depend on psychological questions, questions about the nature of the soul, the faculties of the soul. And psychological questions, in turn, depend on metaphysical questions. Right? So the kinds of things that we can say um, that the human soul can do, the kinds of powers that we have, will partly be determined by the kinds of um, options we think are before us about the kinds of things that the soul could be and the kinds of, uh, the kinds of things that are out there in the world for human beings to grasp or to know. Uh, and uh, this isn't to say that uh, we're going to march through all of these levels of questions today, and, and it's, not, it's not the case that you have to do this in a kind of systematic way, right, that we'll, we'll, we'll spend, uh, you know, the next, um, you know, few days on metaphysics, and then we'll spend a few days on philosophical psychology, and then finally we can get to epistemology in general, and I mean, that would be nice, but that would be, that, that could be a whole curriculum. We could spend years on that, right? We, we can address epistemological questions without immediately tracing them back to metaphysical questions. We can address them even without immediately tracing them back to questions of the nature of the soul. But I just want to point, you, point out that those questions are in the background when we're asking them. And sometimes if we're having trouble understanding how knowledge works in a certain area, right, um, it can be helpful to realize what assumptions we're making about the nature of um, our powers of cognition and the nature of reality and the kinds of things that our, our powers would even would even be. Um, so that's that's a kind of background. Um, the the crucial perspective of Saint Thomas on on uh, matters of ethics is that ethics is a um, Ethics is a matter of cognition more than will. I'll put it that way. Ethics is a matter of cognition more than will. Another way to put it is that ethics is rational. It is, it is subject to reason. Uh, there are other theories of ethics that, make, that make, make ethical judgments something else. They make ethical judgments expressions of feeling. They make ethical judgments socialized habits, right? You just think that way because, you know, your parents and your, your society and your culture taught you to, to think that way. Uh, there are theories of ethics that say that uh, ethics is a will to power. That phrase comes from Nietzsche, but the idea was, uh, 
already entertained by ancient Greeks is, is the first main idea that Plato feels like he has to refute in, uh, in the Republic. There's a character, Thrasymachus, who says, well, justice is just the interest of the stronger. When somebody says, I think this is just and that's unjust, they're just trying to exert their will over you. Um, so there are different, different accounts of even what kind of thing we would be doing when we're making a moral judgment. And at, at root, the, the sort of key to Aquinas' approach to ethics is that it is, it is a cognitive matter. It is something that is intelligible and capable for us to understand. And so one of the things that's interesting in trying to make Aquinas make sense in our culture, in our world, is that I think that often sounds surprising when people first hear it. I think we're more likely in our culture to be socialized into thinking that um, moral judgments are primarily either a matter of feeling or they're a matter of socialized habit, uh, or there's something else, anything else, but a matter of uh, grasping the truth of the way things really are. Right? So that when there's moral disagreement, um, at most, right, only one person could be wrong. Maybe both people are wrong, but you can't have a you can't have moral disagreement in which both people are right or both people are you know equally valid or um, you have the right to your opinion, I have the right to mine. Um, I won't talk a lot about what I think are the reasons why we've come to a state where our culture um, takes for granted that morality is subjective, that it's socialized, uh, that we, even if it were true, that we don't have access to it. Uh, but I think there are a lot of social uh, uh, and philosophical reasons why we've come to that, um, that state. Uh, probably you have heard people say, they summarize this uh, sort of skepticism about morality um, as a form of relativism. Is that a familiar phrase? You have the phrase relativism? Um, and there's a way in which I think it's fair to say that we kind of live in a relativistic age or that a Thomistic approach to ethics has to overcome a kind of uh, knee-jerk relativism in modern culture. Um, I think relativism, though, is a little bit imprecise as a term. So uh, relativism, I guess if we were to define it, we would say it's the view that truth is relative, right? Or when we talk about truth, you always have to index it to the, the individual perspective of the person who, who is perceiving the so-called truth. But then if your perspective is different from mine, right, then there's no sort of independent or transcendent or uh, uh, the usual alternative to relative, absolute truth. There's no truth out there. There's only truth in your, uh, in your perspective. And now... I mean, the typical way to fight against relativism is to find something that uh, we all agree with or something that we, we wouldn't want to say, well, that there, there, there's an opinion that I disagree with, but it's at least equally legitimate. Um, I used to be able to count on this more than I do today, although I think we can still generally count on it. You know, we can talk about the Nazis or Hitler and say, well, obviously we think what they did was wrong, right? Uh, but I, often, you know, someone will say, well, it's wrong for us. But from their perspective, it was right. It's kind of like a trivially true psychological observation. If someone believes something, it's true from their perspective. Um, here's why I think it's, it's misleading to call this problem relativism, though. Um, relativism, broadly speaking, means that truth is relative to the person. But what we're talking about is specifically relativism about moral judgments. Many people might be relativistic about moral judgments and still believe there's plenty of truth, right? There, there could be scientific truth, there could be historical truth, there could be um, uh, mathematical truth, right? And as a matter of fact, 
Um, I don't think I've ever met a relativist. Um, I think relativists exist inside the minds of philosophy professors and discussions in philosophy classes, and it's almost kind of a strong um, I've met plenty of people who might be relativistic about this matter or that matter, but everybody believes that there's some realm where, yeah, that's true, and if you disagree, you're wrong. I mean, you might, you might have a different opinion. I might even be you know, reasonable and polite to you and respect you for having that opinion, say you have the right to that opinion, but I'll tell you to your face you're wrong, that that, 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 that opinion is wrong. Uh, I just started using a word, though, that I think is a key to a better uh, understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about relativism. Um, and, and it's less likely that you've heard this term, although some of you will have. Um, and the term is positivism. Um, positivism was a, a, a theory in epistemology that came about in the... It first came about in the 19th century. It had another little sort of flare-up of trendiness in the 20th century. Um, it, it never really took on within philosophical circles for very long, for reasons that I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But it's been very culturally forceful. I think, it's, I think it would be better to say that we live in a positivistic age than that we live in a relativistic age. So what is positivism? Positivism is, is the view that the only things that can be true or false are things for which there can be empirically provable evidence. I'll say that again. Positivism is the view that the only things that can be true or false are things which, for which there can be empirically provable evidence. So, um, or, or uh, obviously things that are true by definition. So, like geometry and mathematics, and those things count as true. Um, you know, whether or not the moon is made of green cheese—that's a—that's an empirical question, right? We, we, I guess we've been to the moon, although some people claim we don't even know that. Um, I guess we've proven, we have empirical evidence that it's not made of green cheese, but like that's, that's something. So all of science is, you know, a realm where there can be truth, right? And you've probably noticed this, that even people who say that they're relativists about something will accept that there's, you know, truth in science, or at least in some of the sciences. Um, the kinds of things that can be empirically proven are the things available to our senses, the things that, that can be sort of put physically in front of different people, and they can all look at it, yeah, from their different perspectives, but then um, kind of uh, verify or not whether, whether the thing out there, um, uh, you know, counts as evidence in favor of or against um, a, uh, a certain proposition. There are a lot of things that are important to us that aren't like that, right? And ethics isn't the only one. Right. The most, the most um, common one that people might talk about um, is aesthetics. Right? You've all heard beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and there might even be social consensus about beauty, but uh, we still, most people probably think that beauty is really a, a subjective matter and not something about which there is an objective reality. Um, or at least in some areas of life, right? Um, beauty is like that. Maybe there are other areas where we think that we actually could sort of come up with some independent standard of what beauty is. But in general, aesthetic standards are harder to come up with an empirical, verifiable test of, you know, is, is this beautiful or not? Uh, is this, you know, does this have carbon in it or not? That's, 
we can we can do a test on that. But is it as beautiful or not? That's harder. So aesthetic judgments are harder um, to have a test for. Um, theological judgments are also harder to have a test for. Um, I don't think Aquinas would quite agree with this. I think he does believe there's empirical evidence for the existence of God. But the way most people talk about theological belief, they would say, oh, well, that's for, um, uh, you know, invisible things, right? God, God isn't something that we can see. Even if, even if Aquinas is right and we have some imp indirect empirical evidence for the existence of God, we don't directly see the divine nature. Uh, he's not a physical thing. And so um, uh, we can't empirically test the question of whether or not God exists. Um, so theological matters are often uh, 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 the, the other large domain which we don't have a clear empirical test for. Um, and then, obviously, the one that interests us today, which is uh, moral questions. Um, you all think murder is wrong? Please raise your hand if you think murder is wrong. If, if your hand isn't raised, please like back away. Please step. Like we don't want to. We don't want to be too close to people like you, right? But what's what's the evidence for that? How do we come to that consensus, right? Could argue murder causes suffering. Yeah, there's a lot of things cause suffering. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Why well, ask people to back away? Right? But that's just you know that's just an expression of your feeling. Right? So when I say murder is wrong, maybe I just mean I don't want to be murdered and I don't want to be around people. Right? doesn't mean it's true or false. Right? It just means that it's useful for me to be able to express to others effectively that I think murder is wrong and to, you know, I feel safer if I live with people who would, would assent to that. Um, yeah? You can make arguments that if one is societal evolution as if the things that have survived are good, True. Yeah. The things that have not survived in the cause. Yeah. Then the argument that societies would permit murder, yeah. say, uh, Aztec society versus Western society prohibitable, you can make the there is a true false that's good. And, and appropriately, you started with the hypothetical. If you can assume there's a connection between long term survivability and goodness, right? So this is the kind of empirical evidence that people might search for, right? Sociologically, we know that a culture that tolerates murder isn't going to last as long as a culture that does. But not lasting as long doesn't necessarily mean morally superior. It just means, you know, going to fail the Darwinian test in the long run. Uh, maybe we all care about survival, right? But even that, the fact that we all want to survive or that we want our cultures to survive, that, that, doesn't yet rise to the level of like, empirical evidence that murder is wrong. It just it, it, all, all it says is murder isn't a, a survivability trait. Right? Mur murder doesn't foster um, a, a healthy society by some definition of healthy, but but does, does, is a healthy society necessarily a moral society? What if what if we found out, for instance, um, we could do an empirical study. Uh, and what if what if the empirical study showed that actually a culture with uh, rare but some predictable uh, 
discrete amounts of murder it is more likely to survive because people are like more on their toes and you know and then, and, then, and then people just like if you have if you actually had a society where there was no murder at all that society would get weak and, like, you know people they feel no skin in the game they would be trying to defend themselves and so they'd be vulnerable like I don't think even if we found that out right we, it, it could already be in the paper for all of them right it's an empirical question whether whether that is possible. Um, even if we found that out, I don't think any of us would be like, okay, well, we'll, we'll just revise you know, the Ten Commandments. Like, we'll say murder is usually wrong, but not always. Right? I think we would still want to say, well, even if it would help survivability to have some casual murder here and there, just to keep us on our toes, it's still wrong. Yeah. You argue that murder is not necessarily wrong, but it's an accident of our reality that there are no cases of people agreeing that murder is uh, well, so then you're turning murder is wrong into a sociological observation. You're, you're interpreting the claim murder is wrong as the claim people in this society view it as wrong. Well, it's, it's an accident that no one in our, in, in our world right. uh, agrees that murder is right or disagrees that murder is wrong. Um, but then again, that would, that would be an observation about what people believe in a society and not really an observation about murder, which might be a way of saving the truth of murder is wrong, right? But it's, we're saving the truth of it by translating it into a different kind of statement. We're taking what we thought was a moral statement, right? A claim about murder having, having some wrongness about it or probably better having a privation of goodness about it. Um, and we're saying, okay, but we're not really talking about the nature of murder as having this moral property, we're talking about these people as having this consensus. And that, that might be fine, but the, part of the point I'm trying to make is that that's the kind of move you have to make if you adopt the positivist test for truth. Right? The positivist test for truth is, if it's, if it's in the realm of the empirically verifiable, then it can be true or false. And here's the flip side. If it's not in the realm of the empirically verifiable, it is neither true nor false. It's not that it's false. It's not that it's true for you. It's that it's, it doesn't have intelligible content. It's, it's meaningless in the, in the rational sense. It's, it's not true or false. It's just an expression, right, which you might have feelings about, but those feelings would, would themselves be a translation of the, the apparent meaning of murder is wrong into something else, which is, I, you know, it elevates my blood pressure when I think about murder, right? I get scared or I'm, you know, I'm repulsed by the idea of it. Um, it, would, it would be facts about the non-rational part of me, my feelings, rather than a, a claim about the nature of something. Uh, very briefly, and then I see a hand in the back, the reason that positivism didn't last very long among philosophers is that uh, it's very quickly self-refuting. Uh, only things that can be empirically tested can be true or false. Is that an empirically testable hypothesis about the nature of truth and falsehood? It's not, right? So as soon as people see that, they're like, okay, well, uh, maybe I could adopt a version of it, maybe I could amend it, maybe. And so there are some positivists of some stripe. But in general, as, as a strict rule for, for uh, what's the nature of truth, well, it's what can be empirically verified. It doesn't survive its own test. Uh, but the fact that something doesn't survive in philosophy departments doesn't really tell you very much about, about its fate. And it's survived 
in, in our culture in all kinds of ways. One way it survived is in other disciplines that are a little bit philosophical, but also a little bit scientific and a little bit historical. All of the social sciences are the result of this sort of positivist mentality. The social sciences are an attempt to address questions of human behavior in a scientific, that is empirically verifiable way. Right? So especially sociology and psychology, a little bit economics. Those all classically would have been thought to raise questions that are addressed within moral philosophy, broadly speaking, right? How do human beings behave? How should they behave? Well, how should we assess human behavior? But the social sciences were born out of an attempt to take human behavior seriously, but not address it in terms of moral questions. Address it in terms of other kinds of standards that are empirically verifiable. The other place, and then I, I do remember that there's a hand at the back, the other place in which uh, there's widespread sort of effect of the positivist mentality is in uh, the way that our culture takes for granted that there is a distinction between facts and opinions. There's two kinds of statements. And some of you are actually trained to think this way. I don't know if it's true in, in the United Kingdom and in America. It's, it's actually a part of state-mandated education that every child around third, fourth, fifth grade do a bunch of worksheets to practice uh, sorting statements into whether they're fact claims or whether they're opinion claims. And fact claims are things that can be empirically tested, and they're either right or wrong. And opinion questions can't be empirically tested, and they're just a matter of feelings. Um, I might talk a little bit more about those, but I saw you had a hand before, and maybe I talked past it. But what did you want to say? Um, the logic of the option does seem that some people's thoughts are true, and everybody accepts that. Right. Let's say that they do. Right. Um, so we know that some kind of truth exists, and we say that we apply to the evidence. Is that our assuming that we know empirical evidence? Ethics, which often would be used to think that the sun revolves around the world. Right. This, yes, I think I see your question, right? Is, 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 it, uh, is it arrogant to assume that just because we don't have evidence yet, that, that we won't come upon evidence? Mm -hmm. so, so the point of, of the positivist view isn't that we can only regard as true or false things for which we already have evidence. It's that we can only regard as true or false um, answers to questions that are at least in principle empirically verifiable, whether we can empirically verify them yet or not. Okay. So that there is another planet revolving around a distant star that has a habitable uh, environment for oxygen. Uh, we don't know that yet. We haven't detected anything like that yet. Right? But that's an empirical question. Maybe someday we'll find out, or maybe we'll never find out. That there's aliens on another on another planet. We don't we don't have evidence for that yet, but we could, uh, in principle, find that out. And a positivist would say, look, the question about whether murder is right or wrong that's just not that's not the, the reason that we have trouble answering that isn't because like we haven't figured out the murder wrongness detection technology yet. We haven't like you know launched a a, a project. To finally examine the nature of murder and reveal its empirical wrongness. No, it's the, the very nature of the, the, the question is describing something that's beyond empirical observation. That, that would be the positive point. What about a sensological verification or any kind of... Uh, oh, I like this. Right. 
I mean, this would be this would be a satisfying response to uh, a positivist, maybe, but I'm not sure that positivists would particularly take it seriously. And if, if I, I don't know if you heard, I, and, and you can tell me, what's your name? Emma. Emma. Uh, Emma, tell me if I'm if I'm getting this right. Emma said, uh, "What about eschatological?" Uh, perspective. In other words, like after we die and we're in heaven and we're like we have direct access to God and we see the truth and we're like okay, well we know there's an afterlife and we know that these things were wrong and these things got people, uh, you know, punished eternally. Uh, so like, hey, I'm here to test it. Maybe, maybe that would count as satisfying a positivist criterion. But the positivist doesn't think that's even possible because the positivist thinks it's crazy to even ask questions about God or after. Um, I mean, I would love for you to write a short story about a positivist who goes, spend some time on purgatory. I think that would be a fun, I think that would be a fun short story. Uh, or maybe goes to limbo and hangs out with Aristotle for a while. Um, yes? distinction. What's the difference between positivism and materialism? This is a very good question. What's the difference between positivism and materialism? I guess I would say positivism is the epistemology that you have to hold if the metaphysics you hold is materialism. So if you believe that the only things that are real are physical substances and you're you're committed to that, maybe you think it's the conclusion of an argument or maybe as I often find the case, it's, 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 it's just dogmatic or it's the result of a circular argument. But if you think that the only things that are real are physical substances, then you would think that the only things about which there can be truth are things that have a physical and um, empirical verification for them. Right? Um, but I think it's worth distinguishing. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's valuable to have a word for the, the epistemological consequence of materialism and distinguish those things. You could be a positivist and not necessarily a materialist, although they, they often go hand in hand. And bless you, you could be a materialist and try to have a non-positivist epistemology, although it's, it's hard and awkward and you, know, you might end up saying some weird non-intuitive things. Um, but uh, historically, the, the, the positivists were positivists because um, they wanted to keep alive a doctrine of science while uh, uh, being committed to um, a, a sort of materialist and empiricist um, philosophy. Yes? I'm just interested in, in the realm of science and how a positive can say that there's always absolute truth because sometimes some stuff in science, so, well, one example is most quantum mechanics and so, sure. stuff like photoelectric effects where you know, like either be a wave or a particle. And it's, right. Near it's pretty much random as far as we know. How how positivists can reconcile that? You know, saying that science is true in some ways. Oh well, I mean, um, a, a positivist can still accept that there are realms of the physically empirical world that are subject to degrees of uncertainty that maybe they, they, they can't be measured, or we know that measurement affects the outcome. So I mean. Um, the, the, the fact that um, you know, light behaves as a particle or as a, or as a wave, uh, the, the fact that, that there are events um, at the quantum level that um, we, we can't uh, know without a, uh, our trying to know them affecting the outcome, um, 
Un uncertainty is itself something that's empirically verifiable, right? It it's actually because of empirical tests in lab that, that people came up with these, these theories to account for it. And presumably they want to say it's true that uh, you know, light is both a particle and a wave. Uh, it might sound like uh, it's messy. It might involve us acknowledging that part of the truth of the thing is our own limitation in being able to know it. But even our own limitation in being able to know it is an affirmation that it is a realm of truth about which we can try to form uh, uh, knowledge. But can you also say that because we cannot you know, know this sort of empirical thing, then why can we, why is this empirical thing the supreme thing that we should judge everything by in some ways? Is, is Thing. It, it's, you know, ultimately, you're, you're saying that we should judge everything by our senses of guilt comparatively. How can you trust in your evidence? Sorry? How can you trust in your evidence? Well, yeah, how do you trust in your senses to trust in the evidence in some ways? And then say that, that, that we should trust in our senses to trust in our way of making moral judgments in some ways. It's sort of the argument I'm trying to make. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, positivists materialists and empiricists in general um, are, while, while they use sense observation as the criterion for our access to the truth, right, um, they, they, they're not committed to the idea that our sense observation is, as it, as it exists here and now, is the only criterion of truth, right? Because part of, uh, just like we can imagine technology that might take us to another part of the universe to detect something we can't detect yet, we could imagine that we develop tools that see a different part of the light spectrum that our eye doesn't directly see. Uh, that we could uh, develop some uh, way of observing uh, quantum phenomena that we can't yet observe. Right? All, all that they need is that in principle is what we're talking about, a physical phenomenon. So that in principle, some, someone with some kind of sense apparatus, not necessarily our human sense apparatus, could detect it under some hypothetical circumstances. I mean, the funny thing about positivism is that it relies on a lot of thought experiments, right? Could we imagine that there be some way to observe something that isn't observable? But, but the reason it can rely on imagination is because it's, it's uh, trying to discern whether or not there's a physical thing to detect. And to go back to the simple example we were using before, right? We can't detect murder except as a social phenomenon with certain kinds of consequences, but those consequences aren't wrongness. Those consequences might be things we don't like, those consequences might be ugly and messy and scary and whatever, but they're not wrong. Whatever. Like, what's, what's wrongness? We don't, have a, we don't have an empirical scale for that. I'll, I'll do this as the last question, then I'll try to wrap up for this session. I'm, I, we'll have time for more question and answer, too. Go ahead. Um, I think what I'd like to question, what do you define, how do you define empiricism? Because if, if the positivist argument is that empiricism provides us with answers about reality, reality ends in death. Reality exists in what we can sense, in what we can experience, yeah. death is the end. So, in that, if, that, if that's the parameters you work with, what murder is, is the ending of reality. It is the ending of what we can experience. And since we can experience life, we cannot experience death. It is 
outside of the empirical way of life. It's outside of using your senses to justify the reality. Um, for the one who murdered this, not for the rest of us who observe it. They are still part of the experiment, right? Um, are, are you suggesting this is a way that a positivist could say murder is wrong? Because yeah. it sounds to me more like a way of a positivist doubling down on the idea that, you know, we can't even say whether ending a life is right or wrong. We can say that it's distasteful. We can say that we don't want it. Uh, we could we could say, well, actually, in some cases, I do want it for the bad guys. I want to sterilize them. Uh, or we could say, uh, once it's ended, there's nothing more to say about it. But none of that sounds like a moral judgment. Those still sound like descriptions of physical phenomena. But if, if the criteria for is the experience of knowledge of reality, the ending of that experiment is the ending of reality, is the ending of life. So if you're if your men says we must do that which is part you must play the game. You must play the game, you must take everything through empirical, everything must go through senses, then ending the experiment doesn't benefit the experiment. More more people, more evidence, more experience. Ending the experiment early has a negative impact on the overall experience. It's a negative impact on your I don't, I don't see how a positivist could say that's necessarily negative. I mean, they, they, they the, the fact that um, your experience of something ends isn't a, isn't a moral evaluation. We can discuss this Yeah. I'll give a short answer to your first question. There's a very close connection between positivism and empiricism. And for the, the you know, the, um, those, you know, more invested in history of philosophy. You can think of positivism as the attempt to save science after Hume. Right? Hume, Hume did a, a reductio on empiricism and said, well, if there's only physical reality, then there's no knowledge. But, but along with empiricism was the scientific revolution, and that, so that seems kind of absurd. We have a lot of knowledge, we have a lot of scientific knowledge, and the, the positivism is an attempt to theorize how is it that we can know about the physical realm. Even if Hume is right, and we don't know the causes of the physical realm, we, but we have observations of it, and the physical realm is all there. That, that would be my short answer to the relationship between um, positivism and, and empiricism. Um, in the time that we have left before I break for questions, so our session ends a quarter after, right? But I want to give like 15 minutes more for kind of open-ended questions. Um, I want to get to the question raised by the title of this session, right? Which is who, who is to judge or who gets to judge? Um, Aristotle was not all that concerned with the kind of skepticism, relativism, or what I'm calling positivism uh, that, that we grapple with. Aristotle took it for granted that um, there were certain things that are right and wrong, um, that these weren't even worth arguing about. If you want to, if you want to argue about theft and murder and adultery uh, and whether or not they're wrong, you don't belong in the philosophy lecture with Aristotle. Leave the room. Right? Only, only people who are already well, well brought up and have, have good habits 
uh, deserve to theorize the nature of morality. And if, if, if you're wondering about those things, you have problems that a philosophy uh, professor probably can't help you with. Um, Aristotle took it for granted that there was right and wrong in morality. But he did answer this question, who gets to judge? Um, and one of the first places that he answers it is in his definition of virtue. Uh, maybe this is something that we can talk about more in question and answer, or maybe it will uh, come up in the, in the afternoon, uh, the second afternoon talk. But Aristotle gives a, a definition of virtue early on in the Nicomachean Ethics. And um, he says that virtue is a habit concerned with choice, lying in a mean. I'm not going to describe what each of these things uh, uh, each part of this uh, definition of virtue is yet, but a, a habit uh, concerned with choice, lying in a mean, the mean relative to us, determined by reason, and not just any reason, the reason of the prudent person. So built into the definition of habit is that it's something that can be known, it's something that we cognize, it's something that we intelligibly see, it's not just something that we feel, it's not just something that we want, it's something that is rationally determined, determined by reason, by logos is the Greek word, and not just any logos because there are some really, really smart criminals. They're bad guys who are, part of, part of their badness is how clever and rational they are at getting their badness done. So, so whose reason is it? Who gets to judge? Who gets to judge what counts as a virtue? The reason of the prudent person. In, in Greek, it's one word. There's a, there's a virtue called prudence, phronesis is the Greek word, and the prudent person is the phronemos. So virtue is a habit of choice, a habit of like, what should I do here and now? What should I do next? What, 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 is, what is the next thing for me to do? as exercised by someone who is prudent. Now, what is prudence? Prudence is the virtue of making good judgments. Uh, and many people, when they first hear this, they think that Aristotle has given a certain definition. But Aristotle's definition of, of virtue that I just gave you is a definition of moral virtue, that is a definition of, the, the, of our making choices about how we should behave. And phronesis, or prudence, is an intellectual virtue, not a moral virtue. It's a, it's a perfection or virtue of how we think, or how we discern the truth of things. So the person who gets to judge right and wrong in morality is the person who has a, an intellectual virtue, that is a perfection of intellect, that is capable of making good judgments about the moral virtues about behavior, about what we should do, but it is itself an intellectual virtue. So part of what is built into Aristotle's definition of, of moral virtue is that there is a, there is a perfection, a, a, a certain kind of practical wisdom that makes it possible for one to judge the truth or falsity of, of moral claims. And that uh, this is being a virtue, it's something that some people have and some people don't, and that it's possible to acquire, it's possible to increase it, it's also possible to you know, um, you know, only have it in a nascent form and have it undeveloped or misdirected. Right? And so Aristotle has an account of why it is that maybe we disagree about some things, 
or that different cultures disagree about some things, or about how it is that different perspectives uh, mean that um, you know you see something one way and I see something another way. But he doesn't then throw up his hands and say, uh, oh, well, then there's no such thing as right and wrong because everybody, every perspective is equally legitimate. Not every perspective is equally legitimate for Aristotle. If, if people disagree about something, then you want to ask the ones who actually have, have the capability to make a good judgment in that area. So if there's moral truth, there also has to be a, 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 a perfection, a virtue, an excellence of judging moral truth, and we should expect that actually to be relatively rare. Right? There's a kind of baseline of judgment that we all, we all want to accept and we hope that we all believe that murder, theft, and adultery are wrong. But when it comes to you know, difficult, complicated questions, uh, then maybe we, we want to look for authorities, we want to look for more experienced people, we want to look for people whose lives uh, reflect uh, you know, the kind of um, uh, habit of choice that we, that we think indicates here this person has prudence and this person doesn't. Um, so when I think, I, I'll end on this point, I think in our culture when we hear the phrase as a question, who gets to judge? We often think that that's merely a rhetorical question and that it's meant to be a conversation stopper, right? You're in the midst of an argument and you're like, oh, well, but I see it this way. Oh, but I see it this way. Oh, who gets to judge? And we throw up our hands and we're like, oh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. It's all just relative anyway, right? Aristotle would take that as not a rhetorical question, who gets to judge? He thinks that's a real question and that it has an answer. Who gets to judge is the person who has the excellence of judgment the person who is capable of making evaluations of um, uh, right and wrong behavior, and that that is, a, that, that is an actual power that is, is possible for some people to have. And if you wonder whether or not you have it, you should go looking for it, and you should go looking for it in, in other people. That also might sound a little bit um, uh, circular. Like, if, if you're not a good judge, how would you judge who is a good judge? Uh, there, I think there is a problem there. But I think we've also all been in those situations where we realize, you know, I lack, I lack the ability to see you know, everything in this area, but I know someone who I trust. Or I know someone who has a reputation for uh, you know, being really insightful on these matters. We look for mentors. We look for uh, advisors. We look for spiritual guidance. We look for um, uh, advice to, to help us through uh, difficult dilemmas. Um, and so even in recognizing where we we don't yet feel that we have the fullness of prudence ourselves. We can at least have enough prudence to, to discern that about ourselves and realize, hey, I don't, I don't know enough here. And enough prudence to judge, here's someone who has more prudence than I do, and seek help from that person. Um, so that's the point on which I will, I will end. Right? Um, morality, there is truth in morality. Right? Um, we can account for all of the said uh, for all of the objections, right? We can, uh, we can account for the fact that um, moral, moral judgments feel like they're from a subjective perspective. They sometimes feel like we don't have access to them. They sometimes feel like they're conditioned by social, a social environment and vary from one culture to another. But that is all consistent with there being a truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is not something that's empirically tested, but it's, it is available to a certain kind of intellectual perfection, the, 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 the perfection of the intellect in practical judgment, namely prudence. And so who gets to judge is the prudent person.
I'll stop there and we'll see where the question and answer goes from there. Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, Jason. Jason. Uh, so I think another modern question that comes up or problem is it not just necessarily that, um, that, that that modernity is subjective or relative or positivistic or anything like that, but it's that we don't trust that the moral judgments that are made are going to be forever tenable. So I don't know, I can give you an example of this is like institutional slavery or institutional racism where sure. at the time not only did higher authorities but they were making scriptural arguments and they were making moral arguments or making philosophical arguments. So I think I'm curious what your perspective on is well how do you answer the question of of those who might put out well yeah like I don't necessarily think truth is subjective but I think that we, we might not be right about it and that's why we shouldn't retain orthodox views regarding I, this is this is a great question. Right, um, uh, and and I, I didn't really address this. I didn't I didn't really address this uh, problem. So the question is, uh, you know, some some reluctance to a commitment to truth and morality might not be um, rooted in relativism or subjectivism or what I'm calling positivism, but it might be rooted in uh, can we call it a sense of humility, where we recognize that even if we have um, a, fairly firm moral judgments right now, and maybe even a widespread moral consensus that we could be wrong. We could find out that things that we take for granted now as okay turn out not to be, or things that we thought were wrong, maybe they're allowable in certain circumstances. And we can point to um, examples of this historically, right? Slavery, um, maybe, maybe capital punishment in one sense counts as this. Um, the church used to teach very strongly against usury. Haven't heard many papal teachings on usury recently, but uh, you know, is that because we decided usury was okay, or did we decide that it doesn't really apply? Um, I, I think this is a really good point, and I think that um, another part of the Aristotelian perspective about that, that, that it is possible to have access to moral truth implicitly includes this humility in a way that relativism, subjectivism, um, it, might, it might sound like it's humble to say, oh, well, nobody knows the truth about these things, but actually... That, that gives people a license to, to just do whatever they want, right? Whereas if you think there's truth and you're hopeful that we have pretty good access to it, um, but you also recognize the possibility that we have historically you know, been imperfect and that we might be making further mistakes, I think that fosters further virtues about, about care and humility and uh, circumspection. Uh, part of prudence is... Uh, being circumspect and cautious in applying judgments to new situations. Um, so I think, it, I think it is very important to realize that uh, the, the affirmative of my question, yes, there is truth in morality, doesn't necessarily lead to a sense of omniscience or arrogance or a kind of naivete about the complexity of human history. I think that's a really, a really excellent um, addition to the, uh, the idea of prudence. I think there's a distinction I wish to make between a, a certain, let's call them metaphysical truths, or um, really to say any uh, truths that, that, that you're talking about are uh, testable 
yep. incorporate observable and more truths based on uh, more judgments. Right. It's, it's, I, I, can't, I couldn't quite pinpoint where exactly is the distinction, but it seems to be a, a, a difference in the way, uh, in their implications. That is, uh, to say 2 plus 2 equals 5 uh, is wrong has a different connotation as to say murdered. Uh, because in the latter case, to say murder is wrong implies a uh, condemnation, whereas in the first, it doesn't seem to imply that. Uh, it's pure and simply, you know, you made a mistake. Right. Uh, whereas in the latter, it, it does seem to, to, as you call it, motivism, uh, you know, it shows a, shows a uh, certain emotion. I, I think it does. Right. So, so, where exactly is the question? Right. So if I, if I um, can attempt to frame the question, um, I, there does seem to be a difference between moral claims and moral truths and, and other kinds of claims and truths that involves actually some level of emotion and that therefore sets them apart from those other claims that, that's worth addressing. So nothing in what I, I totally agree, and nothing in what I said denies the role of emotion in moral judgment. What I was trying to criticize was the idea that moral judgment could be analyzed only in terms of emotion or reduced to emotion. Right? So the wrongness of murder is not the fact that people are disgusted by it or scared of it or you know, um, outraged by it. People are disgusted by it or fear it or are outraged by it because it's wrong, at least in part. Right? And so the, the feeling there is not just a, a merely emotional reaction, but is actually uh, a, uh, a reaction of a certain kind of uh, well, I'll put it this way. You know, in Plato's Republic, right, there's, there's three parts to the soul. There's the rational part, and there's the appetitive or emotional part. But between those two, there's a third part. Um, and the Greek word for it is thumos, which can mean anger, uh, and it can also mean um, like pride or dignity. Um, in, in the story of the Republic, uh, the rational part corresponds to the rulers who make decisions for the city. The appetitive part corresponds to the masses who sort of do most of the day-to-day -day work of the city. But the middle part corresponds to like the enforcer class, the, the people whose job it is to get the rules of the rulers to be imposed on the appetites, right? Um, so the, the, the kind of indignation that you feel at injustice, for instance, is not merely an emotion. It, it is a judgment. There, there are, in other words, there are certain kinds of feelings that we have that aren't just feelings, but that are already integrated with judgment, right? You insult me or my family, and I, I, I am angry at you. My sense of pride is wounded. That's not just, like, butterflies in the stomach or me feeling sad. 
It's me making a judgment that I have been wronged by you, right? Um, or, you know, I, I work very hard and I accomplish something and, and I'm honored by other people and I, have, I feel a sense of pride. That's not just a good feeling. That is the, the satisfaction of recognizing that my worth has been recognized, right? So one of the things that I think the Aristotelian tradition, and this is, this is, this is what Thomas sees in, in this tradition as well, is that um, the, the distinction between feeling and reason is a kind of false dichotomy. That between pure feeling and pure reason, there is a kind of, I, we don't have good language for it in English, right? Um, I don't like calling it a feeling or an emotion, but there is a kind of um, uh, not fully rational reaction, a, a passionate reaction, that is not that that participates in reason in a certain way that 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 carries a judgment with it. Right? You are you are outraged by hearing of an innocent person unjustly suffering. Right? The fact that it's unjust is not caused by you recognizing that you have a feeling about it. Right? You have a feeling about it because you recognize that it was unjust. That's something that I think Aristotle can describe better than, say, the positivists or um, uh, uh, another word uh, for, for uh, this view, especially as applied to uh, moral theories, the emotivists, right, who would reduce moral judgment to feeling. Right? Whereas my claim about, about the, the Aristotelian and Thomistic tradition is that they recognize the role of feeling, but they, they want to account for the ways in which some feelings already contain this intelligible or cognitive element. They are judgments of, of right and wrong. Yes? Um, when you're talking about how Aristotle can see the, you have to appeal to the authority that's kind of higher that is um, this prudential person. Um, if someone is to go about that and make that appeal to something and try and figure it out, should that only ever be in the sense of a, either a person or a system? Because you have a lot of people now today, in some ways, mentioning back to Jason said, um, they kind of don't know what to do, so they appeal to just something very bare minimum, like a, I just want other people to be happy, but then that conflicts with other things. Is the way we test the kind of authority works is by if it works systematically, all you know, um, that this matches with that, right. matches with this, and in that way, can we only yeah go to can we only really respect authorities that are systematic or you know a person who has yes a whole systemized view? I mean one. So it's a question. How 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 do we detect authorities? Is yeah. that fair? Is that yeah. is that the question? And what what criterion do we use when we go looking for authorities? I mean, one criterion. I, I don't want to say this is the only one, or even that it's always foolproof. Uh, but one criterion is whether this person has in the past been successful at giving advice on this matter. Uh, take something that seems like outside of the realm of morality. Right? You have a car. Uh, if you had a car and it broke down, like. Would you know how to fix it? A little bit, some basic things. But if it was something that you didn't know how to fix, would you know how to find someone who can fix it? Can you judge who's a good car mechanic? 
100% reliably? I mean, could you be taken for a ride, maybe, if someone was a really, really deceitful car mechanic? I could appeal to someone who would know how to judge that. Yeah. I would just go to... And there's no paradox here, right? Like, I don't know a ton about cars, but I don't have any trouble recognizing a mechanic. So how do I do that? I mean, I, is, it, is it that mysterious even? Like, do we think only good car mechanics can judge good car mechanics? No, like, uh, people like me can tell the difference between a good car mechanic and not. Um, and, and, you know, we can go to other authorities, but, you know, these days you can also just go to YouTube and, like, hey, there's someone who's made a really good video that's teaching me something. How do you judge which, which YouTube experts to listen to? I mean, I don't know how we do that, but it seems to be part of, part of human nature is that we have the ability in, in humility to recognize here's a domain in which I don't have knowledge. I want to find someone who has it, and I, I will be able to recognize when someone has what I lack. That, that is the human condition, that we can do that. And we can do that in, in ethical matters as well, right? At least, you know, on, on some particular moral dilemma, you might realize, hey, I don't have any experience here. I've never heard of anybody who faced this before. But I'll, I'll find someone else who has, right? Maybe, maybe I'll talk to my parents. Maybe I'll talk to a, a spiritual director. Maybe I'll find a YouTuber who's, like, some... I'm kind of joking about that. But there, there are wise people out, out there on YouTube. Harder to find, but... Um, I, I think... Um, partly what we use is someone's track record, but also part of, part of judging the prudence of others is exercising whatever prudence we have and, and, and you know, recognize, okay, here's something that I don't have, so that will help me to, to be able to discern where it is that I find someone who does have it. I think there are lots of different ways that we do that in different circumstances. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.